Part One of the Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary. The Song of the Lark by Willa Siebert Cather. Part One Friends of Childhood, Five and Six. Five. The children in the primary grades were sometimes required to make relief maps of moonstone and sand. Had they used colored sands, as the Navajo medicine men do in their sand mosaics, they could easily have indicated the social classifications of moonstone, since these conform to certain topographical boundaries, and every child understood them perfectly. The main business street ran, of course, through the center of town. To the west of this street lived all the people who were, as Tilly Kronborg said, in society. Sylvester Street, the third parallel with Main Street on the west, was the longest in town, and the best dwellings were built along it. Far out at the north end, nearly a mile from the courthouse in its cottonwood grove, was Dr. Archie's house its big yard and garden surrounded by a white paling fence. The Methodist church was in the center of the town, facing the courthouse square. The Kronborgs lived half a mile south of the church, on the long street that stretched out like an arm to the depot settlement. This was the first street west of Maine, and was built up only on one side. The preacher's house faced the backs of the brick-and-frame store buildings, and a drawer full of sunflowers and scraps of old iron. The sidewalk, which ran in front of the Kronborgs' house, was the one continuous sidewalk to the depot, and all the trainmen and roundhouse employees passed the front gate every time they came uptown. Thea and Mrs. Kronborg had many friends among the railroad men, who often paused to chat across the fence, and of one of these we shall have more to say. In the part of Moonstone that lay east of Main Street, toward the deep ravine which farther south, wound by Mexican town, lived all the humbler citizens, the people who voted but did not run for office. The houses were little story-and-a-half cottages, with none of the fussy architectural efforts that marked those on Sylvester Street. They nestled modestly behind their cottonwoods, and Virginia Creeper. Their occupants had no social pretensions to keep up. There were no half-glass front doors with doorbells, or formidable parlors behind closed shutters. Here the old women washed in the backyard, and the men sat in the front doorway and smoked their pipes. The people on Sylvester Street scarcely knew that this part of the town existed. Thea liked to take Thor and her express wagon and explore these quiet, shady streets where the people never tried to have lawns or to grow elms and pine trees, but let the native timber have its way and spread in luxuriance. She had many friends there, old women who gave her a yellow rose or a spray of trumpet vine and a peace Thor with a cookie or a doughnut. They called Thea that preacher's girl, but the demonstrative was misplaced, 
for when they spoke of Mr. Kronborg, they called him the Methodist preacher. Dr. Archie was very proud of his yard and garden, which he worked himself. He was the only man in Moonstone who was successful at growing rambler roses, and his strawberries were famous. One morning, when Thea was downtown on an errand, the doctor stopped her, took her hand, and went over her with a quizzical eye, as he nearly always did when they met. You haven't been up to my place to get any strawberries yet, Thea. They're at their best just now. Mrs. Archie doesn't know what to do with them all. Come up this afternoon. Just tell Mrs. Archie I sent you. Bring a big basket and pick till you are tired. When she got home, Thea told her mother that she didn't want to go, because she didn't like Mrs. Archie. She is certainly one queer woman, Mrs. Kronborg assented, but he's asked you so often, I guess she'll have to go this time. She won't bite you. After dinner, Thea took a basket, put Thor in his baby buggy, and set out for Dr. Archie's house at the other end of town. As soon as she came within sight of the house, she slackened her pace. She approached it very slowly, stopping often to pick dandelions and sand peas for Thor to crush up in his fist. It was his wife's custom, as soon as Dr. Archie left the house in the morning, to shut all the doors and windows to keep the dust out, and to pull down the shades to keep the sun from fading the carpets. She thought, too, that neighbors were less likely to drop in if the house was closed up. She was one of those people who are stingy without motive or reason, even when they can gain nothing by it. She must have known that skimping the doctor in heat and food made him more extravagant than he would have been had she made him comfortable. He never came home for lunch, because she gave him such miserable scraps and shreds of food. No matter how much milk he bought, he could never get thick cream for his strawberries. Even when he watched his wife lift it from the milk in smooth, ivory-colored blankets, she managed by some sleight of hand to dilute it before it got to the breakfast table. The butcher's favorite joke was about the kind of meat he sold Mrs. Archie. She felt no interest in food herself, and she hated to prepare it. She liked nothing better than to have Dr. Archie go to Denver for a few days. He often went chiefly because he was hungry, and to be left alone to eat canned salmon and to keep the house shut up from morning till night. Mrs. Archie would not have a servant, because, she said, they ate too much and broke too much. She even said they knew too much. She used what mind she had in devising shifts to minimize her housework. She used to tell her neighbors that if there were no men, there would be no housework. When Mrs. Archie was first married, she had been always in a panic for fear she would have children. Now that her apprehensions on that score had grown paler, she was almost as much afraid of having dust in the house as she had once been of having children in it. If dust did not get in, it did not have to be got out, she said. She would take any amount of trouble to avoid trouble. Why, nobody knew. 
Certainly her husband had never been able to make her out. Such little mean natures are among the darkest and most baffling of created things. There is no law by which they can be explained. The ordinary incentives of pain and pleasure do not account for their behavior. They live like insects, absorbed in petty activities that seem to have nothing to do with any genial aspect of human life. Mrs. Archie, as Mrs. Cronborg said, liked to gad. She liked to have her house clean, empty, dark, locked, and to be out of it, anywhere. A church social, a prayer meeting, a ten-cent show, she seemed to have no preference. When there was nowhere else to go, she used to sit for hours in Mrs. Smiley's millinery and notion store, listening to the talk of the women who came in, watching them while they tried on hats, blinking at them from her corner with her sharp, restless little eyes. She never talked much herself, but she knew all the gossip of the town, and she had a sharp ear for racy anecdotes, traveling men's stories, they used to be called in Moonstone. Her clicking laugh sounded like a typewriting machine in action, and for very pointed stories she had a little screech. Mrs. Archie had been Mrs. Archie for only six years, and when she was Belle White, she was one of the pretty girls in Lansing, Michigan. She had then a train of suitors. She could truly remind Archie that the boys hung around her. They did. They thought her very spirited and were always saying, Oh, that Belle White, she's a case. She used to play heavy practical jokes, which the young men thought very clever. Archie was considered the most promising young man in the young crowd, so Belle selected him. She let him see, made him fully aware, that she had selected him, and Archie was the sort of boy who could not withstand such enlightenment, and Archie was the sort of boy who could not withstand such enlightenment. Belle's family were sorry for him. On his wedding day, her sisters looked at the big, handsome boy. He was twenty-four, as he walked down the aisle with his bride, and then they looked at each other. His besotted confidence, his sober, radiant face, his gentle, protecting arm, made them uncomfortable. Well, they were glad that he was going west at once to fulfill his doom, where they would not be onlookers. Anyhow, they consoled themselves. They had got Bell off their hands. More than that, Belle seemed to have got herself off her hands. Her reputed prettiness must have been entirely the result of determination, of a fierce little ambition. Once she had married, fastened herself on someone, come to port, it vanished like the ornamental plumage which drops away from some birds after the mating season. The one aggressive action of her life was over. She began to shrink in face and stature. Of her harem-scarum spirit, there was nothing left but the little screech. Within a few years, she looked as small and mean as she was. Thor's chariot crept along. Thea approached the house unwillingly. She didn't care about the strawberries anyhow, 
She had come only because she did not want to hurt Dr. Archie's feelings. She not only disliked Mrs. Archie, she was a little afraid of her. While Thea was getting the heavy baby buggy through the iron gate, she heard someone call, Wait a minute! And Mrs. Archie came running around the house from the back door, her apron over her head. She came to help with the buggy, because she was afraid the wheels might scratch the paint off the gate posts. She was a skinny little woman with a great pile of frizzy light hair on a small head. Dr. Archie told me to come up and pick some strawberries, Thea muttered, wishing she had stayed at home. Mrs. Archie led the way to the back door, squinting and shading her eyes with her hand. Wait a minute, she said again, when Thea explained why she had come. She went into her kitchen, and Thea sat down on the porch step. When Mrs. Archie reappeared, she carried in her hand a little wooden butter basket trimmed with fringed tissue paper, which she must have brought home from some church supper. You'll have to have something to put them in, she said, ignoring the yawning willow basket which stood empty on Thor's feet. You can have this, and you needn't mind about returning it. You know about not trampling the vines, don't you? Mrs. Archie went back into the house, and Thea leaned over in the sand and picked a few strawberries. As soon as she was sure that she was not going to cry, she tossed the little basket into the big one and ran Thor's buggy along the gravel walk and out of the gate as fast as she could push it. She was angry, and she was ashamed for Dr. Archie. She could not help thinking how uncomfortable he would be if he ever found out about it. Little things like that were the ones that cut him most. She slunk home by the back way and again almost cried when she told her mother about it. Mrs. Crownberg was frying doughnuts for her husband's supper. She laughed as she dropped a new lot into the hot grease. It's wonderful the way some people are made, she declared, but I wouldn't let that upset me if I was you. Think what it would be to live with it all the time. You look in the black pocketbook inside my handbook and take a dime and go downtown and get an ice cream soda. That'll make you feel better. Thor can have a little of the ice cream if you feed it to him with a spoon. He likes it, don't you, son? She stooped to wipe his chin. Thor was only six months old and inarticulate, but it was quite true that he liked ice cream. Six. Seen from a balloon, Moonstone would have looked like a Noah's Ark town set out in the sand and lightly shaded by gray-green tamarisks and cottonwoods. A few people were trying to make soft maples grow in their turfed lawns, but the fashion of planting incongruous trees from the North Atlantic states had not become general then, and the frail, brightly painted desert town was shaded by the light-reflecting, wind-loving trees of the desert, whose roots are always seeking water, and whose leaves are always talking about it, making the sound of rain. The long, porous roots of the cottonwood are irrepressible. They break into the wells as rats do into granaries, and thieve the water. The long street, which connected Moonstone with the depot settlement, 
traversed in its course a considerable stretch of rough open country, staked out in lots, but not built up at all, a weedy hiatus between the town and the railroad. When you set out along this street to go to the station, you noticed that the houses became smaller and farther apart until they ceased altogether, and the board sidewalk continued its uneven course through sunflower patches until you reached the solitary new brick Catholic church. The church stood there because the land was given to the parish by the man who owned the adjoining waste lots in the hope of making them more saleable. Farrier's addition, this patch of prairie was called in the clerk's office. An eighth of a mile beyond the church was a washout, a deep sand gully, where the board sidewalk became a bridge for perhaps fifty feet. Just beyond the gully was old Uncle Billy Beamer's grove. Twelve town lots set out in fine, well-grown cottonwood trees, delightful to look upon or to listen to, as they swayed and rippled in the wind. Uncle Billy had been one of the most worthless old drunkards who ever sat on a store box and told filthy stories. One night he played hide-and-seek with a switch engine and got his sodden brains knocked out. But his grove, the one credible thing he had ever done in his life, rustled on. Beyond this grove the houses of the depot settlement began, and the naked boardwalk that had run in out of the sunflowers again became a link between human dwellings. One afternoon, late in the summer, Dr. Howard Archie was fighting his way back to town along this walk through a blinding sandstorm, a silk handkerchief tied over his mouth. He had been to see a sick woman down in the depot settlement and he was walking because his ponies had been out for a hard drive that morning. As he passed the Catholic Church, he came upon Thea and Thor. Thea was sitting in a child's express wagon, her feet out behind, kicking the wagon along and steering by the tongue. Thor was on her lap, and she held him with one arm. He had grown to be a big cub of a baby, with a constitutional grievance, and he had to be continually amused. Thea took him philosophically and tugged and pulled him about, getting as much fun as she could under her encumbrance. Her hair was blowing about her face, and her eyes were squinting so intently at the uneven board sidewalk in front of her that she did not see the doctor until he spoke to her. Look out, Thea, you'll steer that youngster into the ditch. The wagon stopped. Thea released the tongue, wiped her hot, sandy face, and pushed back her hair. Oh, no, I won't. I never ran off but once, and then he didn't get anything but a bump. He likes this better than a baby buggy, and so do I. Are you going to kick that cart all the way home? Of course. We take long trips, wherever there is a sidewalk. It's no good on the road. Looks to me like working pretty hard for your fun. Are you going to be busy tonight? Want to make a call with me? Spanish Johnny's come home again, all used up. His wife sent me word this morning, and I said I'd go over to see him tonight. 
He's an old chum of yours, isn't he? Oh, I'm glad she's been crying her eyes out. When did he come? Last night, on number six. Hate is fair, they tell me. Too sick to beat it. There'll come a time when that boy won't get back, I'm afraid. Come around to my office about eight o'clock, and you needn't bring that. Thor seemed to understand that he had been insulted, for he scowled and began to kick the side of the wagon, shouting, Go, 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 go. Thea leaned forward and grabbed the wagon tongue. Dr. Archie stepped in front of her and blocked the way. Why don't you make him wait? What do you let him boss you like that for? If he gets mad, he throws himself, and then I can't do anything with him. When he's mad, he's lots stronger than me, aren't you, Thor? Thea spoke with pride, and the idol was appeased. He grunted approvingly as his sister began to kick rapidly behind her, and the wagon rattled off and soon disappeared in the flying currents of sand. That evening, Dr. Archie was seated in his office, his desk chair tilted back, reading by the light of a hot, coal oil lamp. All the windows were open, but the night was breathless after the sandstorm, and his hair was moist where it hung over his forehead. He was deeply engrossed in his book, and sometimes smiled thoughtfully as he read. When Thea Cronborg entered quietly and slipped into a seat, he nodded, finished his paragraph, inserted a bookmark, and rose to put the book back into the case. It was one out of the long row of uniform volumes on the top shelf. Nearly every time I come in, when you're alone, you're reading one of those books, Thea remarked thoughtfully. They must be very nice. The doctor dropped back into his swivel chair, the model volume still in his hand. They aren't exactly books, Thea, he said seriously. They're a city. A history, you mean? Yes and no. They're a history of a live city, not a dead one. A Frenchman undertook to write about a whole city full of people, all the kinds he knew, and he got them nearly all in, I guess. Yes, it's very interesting. You'll like to read it some day when you're grown up. Thea leaned forward and made out the title on the back. A distinguished provincial in Paris. It doesn't sound very interesting. Perhaps not, but it is. The doctor scrutinized her broad face, low enough to be in the direct light from under the green lamp shade. Yes, he went on with some satisfaction. I think you'll like them some day. You're always curious about people and I expect this man knew more about people than anybody that ever lived. City people or country people? Both. People are pretty much the same everywhere. Oh, no, they're not. The people who go through in the dining car aren't like us. What makes you think they aren't, my girl? Their clothes? Thea shook her head. No, it's something else. I don't know. Her eyes shifted under the doctor's searching gaze, and she glanced up at the row of books. How soon will I be old enough to read them? Soon enough, soon enough, little girl. 
The doctor patted her hand and looked at her index finger. The nail's coming all right, isn't it? But I think that man makes you practice too much. You have it on your mind all the time. He had noticed that when she talked to him, she was always opening and shutting her hands. It makes you nervous. No, it don't, Thea replied stubbornly, watching Dr. Archie return the book to its niche. He took up the black leather case, put on his hat, and they went down the dark stairs into the street. The summer moon hung full in the sky. For the time being, it was the great fact in the world. Beyond the edge of the town, the plain was so white that every clump of sage stood out distinct from the sand, and the dunes looked like a shining lake. The doctor took off his straw hat and carried it in his hand as they walked toward Mexican town across the sand. North of Pueblo, Mexican settlements were rare in Colorado then. This one had come about accidentally. Spanish Johnny was the first Mexican who came to Moonstone. He was a painter and decorator and had been working in Trinidad. When Ray Kennedy told him there was a boom out in Moonstone and a good many new buildings were going up. A year after Johnny settled in Moonstone, his cousin, Famos Serenos, came to work in the brickyard. Then Serenos's cousins came to help him. During the strike, the master mechanic put a gang of Mexicans to work in the roundhouse. The Mexicans had arrived so quietly with their blankets and musical instruments that before Moonstone was awake to the fact, there was a Mexican quarter, a dozen families or more. As Thea and the doctor approached the Dobe houses, they heard a guitar and a rich baritone voice, that of Famos Serenos, singing La Golondrina. All the Mexican houses had neat little yards with tamarisk hedges and flowers, and walks bordered with shells or whitewashed stones. Johnny's house was dark. His wife, Mrs. Telemontes, was sitting on the doorstep combing her long blue-black hair. Mexican women are like the Spartans. When they are in trouble, in love, under stress of any kind, they comb and comb their hair. She rose without embarrassment or apology, comb in hand, and greeted the doctor. Good evening. Will you go in? She asked in a low musical voice. He is in the back room. I will make a light. She followed them indoors, lit a candle, and handed it to the doctor, pointing toward the bedroom. Then she went back and sat down on her doorstep. Dr. Archie and Thea went into the bedroom, which was dark and quiet. There was a bed in the corner, and a man was lying on the clean sheets. On the table beside him was a glass pitcher, half full of water. Spanish Johnny looked younger than his wife, and when he was in health, he was very handsome, slender, gold-colored, with wavy black hair, a round, smooth throat, white teeth, and burning black eyes. His profile was strong and severe, like an Indian's. What was termed his wildness showed itself only in his feverish eyes and in the color that burned on his tawny cheeks. That night he was a coppery green, 
and his eyes were like black holes. He opened them when the doctor held the candle before his face. Metessa, he muttered. Metessa, doctor. La Fibra. Seeing the doctor's companion at the foot of the bed, he attempted a smile. Muchacha, he exclaimed deprecatingly. Dr. Archie stuck a thermometer into his mouth. Now, Thea, you can run outside and wait for me. Thea slipped noiselessly through the dark house and joined Mrs. Telemontes. The sober Mexican woman did not seem inclined to talk, but her nod was friendly. Thea sat down on the warm sand, her back to the moon, facing Mrs. Telemontes on her doorstep and began to count the moonflowers on the vine that ran over the house. Mrs. Telemontes was always considered a very homely woman. Her face was of a strongly marked type, not sympathetic to Americans. Such long oval faces with a full chin, a large mobile mouth, a high nose are not uncommon in Spain. Mrs. Telemontes could not write her name and could read but a little. Her strong nature lived upon itself. She was chiefly known in Moonstone for her forbearance with her incorrigible husband. Nobody knew exactly what was the matter with Johnny, and everybody liked him. His popularity would have been unusual for a white man. For a Mexican, it was unprecedented. His talents were his undoing. He had a high, uncertain tenor voice and he played the mandolin with exceptional skill. Periodically, he went crazy. There was no other way to explain his behavior. He was a clever workman, and when he worked, as regular and faithful as a burl. Then some night he would fall in with a crowd at the saloon and begin to sing. He would go on until he had no voice left, until he wheezed and rasped. Then he would play his mandolin furiously and drink until his eyes sank back into his head. At last, when he was put out of the saloon at closing time and could get nobody to listen to him, he would run away along the railroad track straight across the desert. He always managed to get aboard a freight somewhere. Once beyond Denver, he played his way southward from saloon to saloon until he got across the border. He never wrote to his wife, but she would soon begin to get newspapers from La Junta, Albuquerque, Chihuahua, with marked paragraphs announcing that Juan Telemontes and his wonderful mandolin could be heard at the Jack Rabbit Grill or the Pearl of Cadiz Saloon. Mrs. Telemontes waited and wept and combed her hair. When he was completely wrung out and burned up, all but destroyed, her one always came back to her to be taken care of, once with an ugly knife wound in the neck, once with a finger missing from his right hand. But he played just as well with three fingers as he had with four. Public sentiment was lenient toward Johnny, but everybody was disgusted with Mrs. Telemontes for putting up with him. She ought to discipline him, people said. She ought to leave him. She had no self-respect. In short, Mrs. Telemontes got all the blame. 
Even Thea thought she was much too humble. Tonight, as she sat with her back to the moon, looking at the moonflowers, and Mrs. Telemontis's sober face, she was thinking that there is nothing so sad in the world as that kind of patience and resignation. It was much worse than Johnny's craziness. She even wondered whether it did not help to make Johnny crazy. People had no right to be so passive and resigned. She would like to roll over and over in the sand and screech at Mrs. Telemontis. She was glad when the doctor came out. The Mexican woman rose and stood respectful and expectant. The doctor held his hat in his hand and looked kindly at her. Same old thing, Mrs. Telemontis. He's no worse than he's been before. I've left some medicine. Don't give him anything but toast water until I see him again. You're a good nurse. You'll get him out. Dr. Archie smiled encouragingly. He glanced about the little garden and wrinkled his brows. I can't see what makes him behave so. He's killing himself, and he's not a rowdy sort of fellow. Can't you tie him up some way? Can't you tell when these fits are coming on? Mrs. Telemontis put her hand to her forehead. The saloon doctor, the excitement, that is what makes him. People listen to him, and it excites him. The doctor shook his head. Maybe. He's too much for my calculations. I don't see what he gets out of it. He is always fooled, the Mexican woman spoke rapidly and tremulously, her long under lip quivering. He is good at heart, but he has no head. He fools himself. You do not understand in this country. You are progressive, but he has no judgment, and he is fooled. She stooped quickly took up one of the white conch shells that bordered the walk, and with an apologetic inclination of her head, held it to Dr. Archie's ear. Listen, doctor, you hear something in there? You hear the sea, and yet the sea is very far from here. You have judgment, and you know that. But he is fooled. To him, it is the sea itself. A little thing is big to him. She bent and placed the shell in the white row with its fellows. Thea took it up softly and pressed it to her own ear. The sound in it startled her. It was like something calling one. So that was why Johnny ran away. There was something awe-inspiring about Mrs. Telemontis and her shell. Thea caught Dr. Archie's hand and squeezed it hard as she skipped along beside him back toward Moonstone. She went home, and the doctor went back to his lamp and his book. He never left his office until after midnight. If he did not play whist or pool in the evening, he read. It had become a habit with him to lose himself. End of Part 1 5 and 6 Recording by Mary